Well, good evening. What a joy it is to gather uh, together this evening, this first Sunday evening worship service of our new year. Uh, it's just a joy to end the Lord's Day together. Every Sunday, I always leave thinking, man, that was so worth it. I'm glad I made the trip. So we are glad that you made the trip back down here tonight as well. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. You can find that on page 964 in your pew Bible. We're going to be looking at verses 14 and 15 in particular, but then I'm going to read the whole of 9 through 15 as well, and then keep them handy because we're going to flip over to Matthew 18 after we read that as well. But tonight we are picking back up the Sermon on the Mount, our series that we began uh, back in the fall of 2022, and it's been several weeks since we've been there, so I want to give us a quick recap, just what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount, what the Sermon on the Mount's about, especially if you are new or just joining us. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, chapters 5, 6, and 7, are probably some of the most well-known passages in all the New Testament, maybe even, quite frankly, all the Bible. And while it may be the most well-known, it's also one of the most widely misunderstood. Because what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus describing the Christian life, right? What it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. As John Stott says, what Jesus is doing is defining the norms of the kingdom. And so we see Jesus doing that in these chapters, in the Beatitudes, the first part of Matthew 5, where Jesus immediately shows how God's economy is totally opposite of the world's. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The men and women who are blessed are those who are aware of their spiritual bankruptcy, Jesus says. And he goes on throughout the rest of the Beatitudes with these statements that are baffling. And then he goes on and he talks about these six different antithetical statements where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have been teaching one thing and Jesus comes in and says, you've heard it said this, but I say this. What we see is Jesus' authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament law. And what we find is that the religious leaders of the day had in one sense lowered the bar, lowered the standard of righteousness in, in, in trying to make it obtainable. And Jesus comes in and states authoritatively, no, this is the bar. This is what it means. And so tonight we find ourselves back in Matthew 6, at the tail end of the Lord's Prayer. Now, several weeks ago, it's actually back in November, I went and looked just to find out when it was. Way back in November, if you can remember back that far, uh, Pastor Fender taught through the Lord's Prayer. And he reminds us of the beauty of the Lord's Prayer. Not just that we recite it, though it is a wonderful prayer to recite, but that the Lord's Prayer for, provides for us a model for how to pray. And that model starts 
with a right Godward orientation. That when we're reminded of who we're praying to, the Lord's Prayer orients our mind and it orients our heart. And it starts with God. That yes, God is almighty. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is holy. But he's also our Father. And that is who we're praying to. And then we have these petitions following the Lord's Prayer, the three different petitions that are prayers about us and our needs. And so our passage tonight is not part of the Lord's Prayer that we recite, but what we see is Jesus circling back to the the passage uh, in verse 12, in the fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer. And he begins to restate his point. Now, I think it's helpful for us to remember, right? Anytime we see something in Scripture that's repeated, it ought to at least give us cause to pause, to hit the brakes and slow down and ask why. Why is this being repeated? Because oftentimes the repetition is bringing up something that's really, really important. And I think that that's exactly the case with our passage tonight. Because the topic that we are looking at is deeply deeply personal to each and every one of us. In fact, some would claim, and I I think they're probably onto something, that it is the key to every single healthy marriage and friendship and relationship and working relationship, that the key to that is forgiveness. And what we see Jesus doing tonight is placing an added emphasis on the importance and the power of forgiveness in the life of a believer. Look with me at Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Hear God's word this evening. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now flip over with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18. Starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when, his, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. 
And so his fellow servants fell down, and he pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay it all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord Jesus, in these next few moments together, would you enlighten our hearts? Would you enlighten our eyes? Would you enlighten our minds? Would you help us to forgive? Would you teach us the gospel, beautiful truths of what it means to be forgiven and to extend forgiveness? In Christ's name, amen. Perhaps you have read the story or the book Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. Recounts the story of Louis Zamperini. It's a beautiful story of World War II hero who went through absolute unspeakable tragedy during World War II. A man who was in a plane crash and endured shark attacks and eventually was captured and tortured. Brutal, brutal, brutal torture. And if you recall in the story of Louis Zamperini, all that he went through, and it's really quite remarkable. And you hear that story, and later on in life, as Louis Zamperini is back from the war, he survives miraculously. And he's back from the war, and he's plagued by this one man, a man he called the bird, who just tortured him brutally. And he's plagued over and over and he has nightmares and he wakes up in the middle of the night seeing this man's face torture and abuse him. And the alcohol can't take it away and eventually uh, he he is at the end of his rope and is there uh, when he's at the end that he goes to a Billy Graham crusade and becomes a Christian and a follower of Christ. And Laura Hillenbrand, writing about her story with Louis Zamperini, says this. She says, My journey into forgiveness began with a phone call, a breathtaking story, and a question. Over the next hour, he told me the most amazing survival story I'd ever heard, a tale that included a plane crash, shark attacks, and capture and torture by the enemy. But what fascinated me even more than the story was the way Louis told it. She said he was infectiously cheerful, speaking of his captor's cruelty without a trace of bitterness. I asked how he could speak so easily of such vicious men. And his answer was simple. I've forgiven them. We've all heard stories, beautiful, amazing, redemptive stories of forgiveness. Corey Ten Boone, the survivor's and the family members of those whose lives were tragically taken in the Charleston massacre, and the the extension of forgiveness that was given 
to that young man who took those lives, each of those family members looking at Dylan Roof and saying, I forgive you. Over and over and over again, we hear these stories of forgiveness and we're warmed, rightly so, by these stories of forgiveness and yet, there's nothing more complicated than forgiveness. Over the last few months in particular, I've heard stories and heard testimony of just different people that I've been around and statements that they've made. I refuse to forgive this person and the hatred and the anger that flows out of them for the wrong that has been done to them. And it's led me to realize as we're addressing this topic of forgiveness, that forgiveness is a complicated subject. And it's messy. And yet it's critical to the Christian life. Now there's no way that in one sermon I can totally cover the topic of forgiveness. But I want to look at two things in particular as we look at this passage tonight. The first is this. The power of forgiveness, specifically in our relationship with God. And the second is the power of forgiveness in our relationship with God. Each other's. And under each of these sections, I'm going to go through and highlight several aspects of things that forgiveness is and things that forgiveness is not. So if you're taking notes, you can write those down. But first, let's look at the power of forgiveness in our relationship with God. First, look at verse 12, back in Matthew 6 with me. The first thing you see is that forgiveness, God's forgiveness, is necessary. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts. It's a prayer. It's something we are praying to God. God, forgive us our debts. Yes, we have been forgiven. If you're a follower of Christ, we've been justified in a one-time sense. We are constantly making a complete mess of our lives. And so there's this constant sense where we're asking God, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. But then you have to ask, what is this debt? What is a debt? A debt is something you owe, right? Something that we have done or something that we have not done and we're now in debt to God. But then if you look down at verse 14, you see the word trespasses. And it's a different word, but there's a sense in which with trespasses, there's some rule, some regulation that has been violated. If you look over at Luke 11, chapter 11, where it Luke's gospel talks about the Lord's Prayer. The word sin is used in the Lord's Prayer. Now, we don't want to have time to get into all the meanings of all these different words, but the heart behind what we're praying in the Lord's Prayer and what Jesus is emphasizing here is that we have a massive debt because of The fact that we have violated God's law, we are in debt to God. Our sins of commission, our sins of omission, leave us owing an insurmountable debt. And that debt is highlighted in Matthew 18. Jesus shows the nature of that debt, doesn't he? Right, he says, what, verse 23, he says, 10,000 talents. Look, I don't know how much 10,000 talents is. And it depends on when the book and the commentary was written or how much money it is today, right? So a book that was released today, inflation, you know, who knows? It's, it's insurmountable, right? 
you can't pay it, I can't pay it. And if you make it in your lifetime, come talk to me afterwards. I would love uh, to be your best friend, right? Somewhere in the neighborhood of $800 million. It's just this insurmountable, excuse me, $800 billion. Insurmountable debt. But it was a debt that he could not pay, verse 25 tells us. And since he could not pay us, this is what Matthew says, he, Jesus says, he says, he could not pay him. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children so that payment could be made. But what does this servant do? He falls on his knees and he begs and he pleads, please have patience with me. I'll pay you everything you, that I owe you. It's a bit laughable, isn't it? There's no way that he can pay this debt back. And yet here he is begging and pleading. And it's pitiful because there's no shot that he could ever do that. And so it is with our sin debt with God as well. It's insurmountable. There's no way to earn it back, to pay it off. There's no amount of bargaining. There's no amount of deals that we can do with God to get out of that debt. Maybe you've done deals with God before. I remember vividly, and, and I remember this because my cousin reminds me of it often. When I was in high school, I made a lot of deals with God. And because I had the man flu, like legit man flu as a high school, you know, strapping, strong high school boy, but I got taken out by like real deal flu. And I thought I was going to die. I mean, I, I literally am at the end of my life, as every man is when he gets a cold. He's at the end of his life. I, as a high schooler, thought this was it. And I made a lot of deals with God. I mean, if you do this, I'll never do this again. And if you do this, I'll never do Now, 24 hours later, I'm feeling great. And my cousin was like, hey, how are all those deals you made with God going now? And I was like, ah, not too good. You know, but we, you can't make these deals. You can't deal your way out of this. That's why verse 27 in that passage in Matthew 18 is so powerful. It's so moving because what is it? It's the pity of the master that releases the servant and forgives him his debt. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that we don't know how to respond to the statement, your bill has been paid until you know how, bill, how big the bill is. What he means by that is that the size of the bill determines how you respond to someone who pays for it. And you only know how to respond when you understand the size and the scope and the magnitude of that bill. Our debt was insurmountable. And yet God, in his kindness and his mercy and his love, has forgiven our sin debt in, in and through the work of Christ. That's why forgiveness is necessary. Our receiving God's forgiveness is the only way that we can have a right relationship with him. That's the first thing. Second thing is this, forgiveness. God's forgiveness is not free. If you look at the debt that the servant owed the master, it was massive. And while the king forgiving the debt may have seemed, at least to the servant, to be free, it would actually have come at quite a cost to the king. 
Think about it. If I owe you $100 and you look at me and you say, I forgive you, you don't have to pay me that back. Well, guess what? That money was already spent. You spent it. You're taking the loss. You're taking the hit. That's coming at a cost to you. In the same way, God's forgiveness is not free. It came at the highest cost, the, lo- the cost of our Lord Jesus. It's the reason, therefore, that God doesn't give us what we deserve, that Jesus takes that full penalty for our sin and the punishment that we deserve falls on him. And, and in return, we receive then the reward of Christ. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, because he is loving, there's free, free, free grace for us. But because he is holy, it's costly grace, infinitely costly grace. He says, but when I know that I'm the recipient of this kind of costly grace, when I know Jesus Christ went to hell's heart for me and was loving and obedient for me, there, that changes me. That's tears. That's amazing. That's exhilarating. That's galvanizing. It changes me because at the same time, on one hand, it humbles me out of my pride and self-centeredness. It affirms me of my inferiority and self-pity. It makes me hate my sin because it led to his death. But it forbids me to hate myself because he did it for me to make me free. Friends, have you experienced the depth of God's love and God's forgiveness for you? Have you openly and honestly laid your sins as best you can without hiding and without covering before the Lord and experienced the healing power of God's forgiveness in your life? First John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness, God's forgiveness was costly. But third, God's forgiveness is not conditional. If you're paying attention earlier in verses 14 and 15, listen to how Jesus says it. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Right? It sounds a whole lot like a conditional statement. If then... He goes on, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We've got a conundrum here. What do we do with this? How do we wrestle with this? Well, we wrestle with it through the whole counsel of Scripture. And what we begin to see is that Jesus is not saying forgiveness is dependent. Our forgiveness is not dependent on... His forgiveness of us is not dependent on our forgiveness of others, but rather our forgiveness flows out of receiving his forgiveness. It's what's so gut-wrenching about Matthew 18, isn't it? When you listen to that parable and you scoff and you go, how could he do that? I mean, literally, how can this guy, like, look what you've been forgiven. How can you come out and you choke this guy and you say, give me what you owe? And it's a fraction of, it's a rounding error of what you owed that guy. And what it shows is not that it's conditional, but that forgiveness was revealed, that man's lack of forgiveness revealed that he didn't get it, that he missed it, that he didn't truly understand the depth 
of which he had been forgiven. The point is not that forgiveness is conditional, right? It's not that forgiving equals forgiven. So if I forgive, then I will be forgiven. But what Jesus is saying here is that a forgiven person is a forgiving person. A forgiven person is a forgiving person. So that's our relationship with God. What about our relationship with others? Well, let's start at the beginning again. Forgiveness of others is necessary. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. There's an ongoing implication. Forgiveness of others is an overflow of being forgiven. It's implied. It's an implied part of the Christian life. And in the same way, as the forgiven person is a forgiving person, Kevin DeYoung notes, an unforgiven, an unforgiving person is an unforgiven person. I hope that makes you feel uneasy because I think it should. An unforgiving person is unforgiven. While our forgiveness doesn't earn our salvation, it is a direct indicator of our understanding of God's love for us. And if we lack forgiveness, then we have to question our deep understanding and our understanding at all of God's love for us. This, uh, over Christmas, my wife, as she typically does during the holidays, will send me her Christmas list. And without a doubt, it includes several books. She's an incredible reader. And uh, one of the books that she asked me to get this year was uh, newly released just a couple months ago. Uh, it's by Tim Keller, and it's called Forgive. And it's a fantastic book. I cannot think, I mean, I cannot uh, recommend it enough. It's been wonderful. But over the last couple of weeks, I, I said, hey, uh, can I borrow your book? So I gave her the book and I borrowed it from her. And as a good husband, she goes, yeah, but don't write in it. Don't tear it up. Don't do anything else. I made it four days. I legitimately read the book for four days. And then I went, uh, I can't. I just started carving it up. I mean, I just absolutely. So she's got another one on the way. It'll be here next week and she'll be, all will be made right. Uh, but Right? I, I want to say there's four things that Keller talks about from forgiveness. And what is it when he says, what defines it? Specifically our forgiveness of others. And this is the first one he says, as we keep tracking here. He says, first aspect of forgiveness is that name the trespass truthfully as wrong and punishable, rather than merely excusing it. So forgiveness of others is what? It's honest. So often we gloss over our sin or we seek to explain it away. It's honest to the core. Forgiveness calls it what it is. Pride, pride. Envy, envy. Greed, greed. It calls lust, lust. Bigotry, bigotry. Hate, hate. Envy, envy. But in the same regard, forgiveness is not 
void of justice. You look at Leviticus 19, and it's very clear the call to call sin what it is and to bring sin to, to light. And in certain cases, there are legal ramifications of that. I don't approach this topic of forgiveness lightly because I know that in a room this big, there are stories, maybe some untold, of pain and hurt and trauma and abuse and injustices that have been done to you or people you know. And let me first just say, if that's you and you're here tonight, I'm so sorry. We love you. Your church family loves you. We want to walk with you. We want to be with you. You are not alone. We would love to talk to you more after the service, if that's you. But real pain and real trauma and real abuse the hands of others. So when you start thinking about forgiveness, it's outrageous. Rachel Den Hollander, former gymnast who was sexually assaulted by Larry Nasser, was one of the first people to come out publicly and began the, the windfall, the, the watershed, the dam broke after her testimony. She's written ex- extensively about this issue. And she, one of the things she writes is that uh, the temporal nature of human justice serves as a picture of God's final justice. And it's because of her understanding of God's justice and her understanding of forgiveness, a biblical understanding of forgiveness and justice that she was able to stand in a courtroom and look at him and say, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more from forgiveness, far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Second thing he says is forgiveness, the point of forgiveness is to identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner rather than thinking how different from you he or she is. It is to will their good intent. Forgiveness of others is honest with ourselves. Honest about our own sinfulness, excuse me, our own sinfulness and our own indebtedness. Third, it is to release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt oneself rather than seeking revenge or paying them back. In the same way, forgiveness is costly to God. It is costly to us. We absorb that wrongdoing. There's a Dutch theologian, Herman Witsius, who said, when God forgives, he frees the sinner from everlasting punishment and he blesses him with his favor, which is a fountain of life and all happiness. But when we forgive, we merely cease to indulge towards the offender our feeble but perhaps impotent wrath and bestow upon him our best wishes. And finally, forgiveness, the aim of forgiveness is reconciliation rather than breaking the relationship forever. Sometimes reconciliation, true reconciliation isn't possible. Maybe the person has passed away, deceased, often takes longer. It requires acknowledgement and repentance of the other party. 
But it is a goal to shoot for. I had a friend years ago who told me of a story where he was trying to help me understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And he told the story how he had co-signed with his nephew for a motorcycle. And uh, as things go, the nephew decided to stop paying the payments, and so it came to him to make the payments, which he did, and he ended up paying off the motorcycle. And he would never return his calls, he would never answer it. And he told me, he said, it took me years, years to get over that. But I finally forgave him, and I have forgiven him. He said, now our relationship has not been reconciled yet because he hasn't yet acknowledged it to me. We haven't been fully restored. But forgiveness has been granted. Maybe you've heard it said, the resentment or bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. I think that's so true. Perhaps you have experienced this before or are experiencing it now. So what do we do with all this forgiveness? Well, are you a prisoner of your own unforgiveness? I would encourage you this week to take some time and to reflect back over your life. Who do you need to forgive? Who have you distanced yourself from? Maybe here in this church, who do you seek to avoid? When you see them, you turn and go the other way. What is it that they did to you? What irritates most about you? What condition do you, have you set that they have to meet for you all? And I would encourage you to be honest and to wrestle through those truths this week. I, told, I was uh, talking with Pastor Franks on Friday and I said, John, I'm all up in my feels with this sermon. And he started laughing. And I said, I think that's probably a good thing. But as I began to reflect over this topic of forgiveness, I looked back over my life and spent some time really wrestling this week. Have I forgiven this individual? Have I really released them? Have I really taken that on? And I realized that there's some cases I had not. And I had to do some heart work with God this week. My encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, friends, have you received first the forgiveness of Christ? If the answer is yes, then is there someone in your life who you're struggling to forgive? It's not easy. I think it is a lifelong process, which is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It is not something we do on our own, and our own power, and our own strength, and our own ability. But it is something by the power of God's kindness and grace that he will grow us in our ability to do. May we look to the cross and be reminded of how much we have been forgiven. And may we be a people who extend that forgiveness to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we consider the topic of forgiveness, we, uh, again, just wrestle with the fact that it is not an easy 
aspect of the Christian life, and yet what a powerful and important, necessary, crucial piece of walking with you. Would you convict our hearts where they need conviction? Would you bring about restoration and, and reconciliation where that is necessary? Would you free us from the prison that we have created even in our own selves through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit? Amen.